Hello and welcome to the Art of Will Building podcast, episode number nine. Today's topic is how to create animals. This includes talking about whether you should do it at all, how to classify them, and what uses we can put them to. This material and more is discussed in Chapter 6 of Creating Life, Volume 1 in the Art of Will Building book series. Do you want practical advice on how to build better worlds faster and have more fun doing it? The Art of Will Building book series, website, blog, and podcast will make your worlds beat the competition. This is your host, Randy Ellison, and I have 30 years of world building advice, tips, and tricks to share. Follow along now at artofworldbuilding.com. The first question we should ask ourselves is whether we need to create animals or if we just want to, and why. If we're doing science fiction and our story takes place almost exclusively on a ship, we may have no reason to invent an animal. After all, it's less likely that they will be walking around. On the other hand, we do have pets here on Earth and they can stay in our houses, so why not have some pets that can be on a ship? That said, a pet is not usually considered integral to a plot. But there's no reason we can't change this. How would we do that? Well, something like a guard dog comes to mind. We can also have pets that have special powers, like the ability to sense certain kinds of radiation or energy. Such an animal might be so useful that it's not a pet, but part of the ship, and in the sense that maybe the ship is going to travel to certain kinds of places in space, and that kind of radiation is expected, and this animal will help them detect it. Now, most likely, there are other ways of doing that at that point, such as technology, but you get the idea. We could also invent animals that give the person who is holding that animal some sort of additional powers. Maybe you can read one person's mind as long as you are holding this animal. Maybe this animal produces something like an egg that, if consumed, gives you the power. This could obviously be true in fantasy as well. And that brings us back to the idea of stories that are not taking place exclusively on a ship, but on an Earth-like planet or a planet that is not Earth-like. If the planet is like Earth, then we could just get away with using the same animals that we have here. This means we could exclusively use existing animals, or we could mostly use them and invent a handful of our own. Both of these are significantly less work than inventing hundreds of animals. Most of us aren't going to have the time or the desire to do such a thing because in most, for most of us, we are storytellers. Even if we're a gamer, then the goal is to create a game that people can play. As always with world building, we want to find a way to create something different while not spending too much time doing that so that we take away from our real goals. And on that note, creating something different is one of the main reasons to create animals. Why does this matter? Well, you might want to take your audience out of their comfort zone. If people know how a parrot acts, but you've created a different kind of bird that is similar, well, they don't know how that bird acts, so they therefore cannot predict what that bird might do. This is true across all of your world building when it comes to life forms, because even standard races like elves and dwarves in fantasy have a typical way that they act, and therefore people expect certain things. Well, if you create all of your own species and races, Nobody has any idea what to expect, and for some people this might be good, for some people it might be bad, so that's why it can be good to have a mix of both of these. In other words, use a little bit of what is standard and then add to that something new of your own. One of the great things about animals is that they do act on things, including our characters. And a major reason to invent our own animal is that if we want to use something from Earth and it doesn't behave a certain, in a certain way and we wish that it did, we can basically use that as an analog for a new animal of our invention and that animal has the behaviors that we want. And when we create that new animal, we should change more than one thing about it 
you know, I've talked about my rule of three when it comes to using analogs, and that means create at least three distinctive and important changes from the original. So if you're starting with a tiger and you wish that a tiger could be trained like dogs, then create a new version of that tiger, change the way it looks and the way it acts and a couple other things, and now you've got a new animal that is similar, but it does what you want and it satisfies the needs that you have. By using an analog, we've already got a lot of the work done for us. We just have to do some research. In the case of a tiger, you would want to understand what it can do and what it can't do and other little things about it. And then make sure that uh, if you're changing things, you know what you're changing. It's kind of like that idea to know a rule before you break it. One of the things that animals do is prey on each other or on species. And this is another great reason to invent one. We can take an animal that is not normally a man-eater and make it be one. We might also decide that it only eats certain species for some reason. Maybe you have a humanoid species that has special eyes of some kind, and those are kind of like a delicacy to this animal. Or maybe the species is just easier to catch. Our characters might also acquire certain skills for hunting, attacking, or defending based on that predator. So we could have a character who grows up around that predator and has learned to deal with it, and then that person now has weapon skills, and after that they go on to become a knight, for example. This is one way to give a character who is growing up in the rural areas unusual fighting prowess that someone might not expect. We could have a scenario where a knight comes across this hunter character in the wild and assumes that any sort of fight that's about to take place between them might be relatively easy and that the knight is easily going to overmatch this hunter. But then the hunter has all these skills that this guy is not expecting. And where did the guy get those skills? Well, he's been fighting this animal his whole life. We may not have an earth animal that would cause someone to develop those skills, so therefore we're going to have to invent one. One question we are often faced with in world building is whether it's worth it to invent something. One of the ways to decide that is to think about how often you intend to use the setting where it will be. If you're only going to use that setting once, then you might not want to spend too much time creating things for it. But if you intend to create a setting that you can use across many books, stories, and products, then it's more worth it to spend the time. If we're only going to use the setting once, this is a good opportunity to create something that's a little bit more abnormal, maybe more risky. And the reason for this is that if we end up thinking that it didn't really go very well or we don't like it that much, then we weren't planning to reuse that setting anyway, and we can just move on. But otherwise, we might be stuck with that animal in a world we're planning to use for the next 20 years. This is something to consider. Let's take a quick break here and talk about where you can get more useful world-building resources. Artofworldbuilding.com has most of what you need. This includes links to more podcasts like this one. You can also find more information on all three volumes of the Art of World-Building series. Much of the content of those books is available on the website for free. And the thing that you might find the most useful is that by signing up for the newsletter, you can download the free templates that are included with each volume of the Art of World Building series, whether you have bought the books or not. All you need to do is join the newsletter. You can do this by going to artofworldbuilding.com newsletter. Sign up today and you will get your free templates and you will never miss an update about what is happening in the great world of world building. Let's talk about classifying the animals we invent. This might not be a very glamorous subject, but it helps us stay organized, and this is one of the challenges of world building. Classifying things can also help us decide what to invent. Something to be aware of is that animals are either invertebrates or vertebrates. This means they're either spineless or not. 
otherwise this has no significance. That said, invertebrates make up 97% of animals. These are the animals that don't have spines. This includes things like worms, sea urchins, snails, jellyfish, arachnids like spiders and scorpions, and crustaceans like lobsters and crab, coral, and even insects. On Earth, they all tend to be relatively small, but we've seen no shortage of enormous ones in science fiction. Something to consider about these spineless invertebrates is that we're probably not going to use them for domestication, sport, guards, or transportation, unless we do make them truly enormous. This means that we might have less use of them. Remember that there are two uses for everything, and what I mean is that the author, or the inventor, like yourself, has a use for these creatures, and the characters may or may not have a use for them. If we have no use for what we're inventing, don't invent it. Our characters may not typically use an animal, but that doesn't mean that they don't interact with it in some way. For example, maybe no one is taking the venom from a scorpion and using it to create poisons, but that doesn't mean that we can't have that scorpion exist and just accidentally sting someone. The character doesn't have a use for it, but we as an author do. Now, we may not think that insects being small is particularly interesting, but we can always create a swarm of them, like locusts. And locusts are known for devouring a huge area of vegetation and basically causing a problem by doing so. Why is that a problem? Well, if you're a farmer and they eat all of your crops, you're kind of in trouble. So is everyone who's counting on your food, like the local town. In horror films, we often see uh, something like locusts that attack people, you know, and that's not what normally happens. They just fly right past people because they don't care. They're not uh, carnivores, but there's no reason we can't do that in our setting. I'm going to spend more time looking at vertebrates, which are the animals you probably thought of when you clicked on this podcast and downloaded it. Vertebrates fall into five categories we're going to look at one by one, and these include amphibians, birds, fish, mammals, and reptiles. So let's talk about amphibians. This includes frogs, toads, and salamanders. There are some basic facts that are similar for all amphibians. They need water to reproduce, and they typically need to stay near the water because they need to keep their skin damp. They are also cold-blooded, and this means that they rely on their environment to regulate their body temperature. This also means they have a slow metabolism, and that in turn means they require less food, and they also expend less energy. They also have muscular tongues that can stick out surprisingly far, and they are usually coiled up inside their bodies when not in use. To avoid being eaten by predators, they can excrete something on their skin through glands that makes them either taste bad so that they're spit out, or that they're actually poisonous and animals learn their lesson. The poisonous ones tend to be brightly colored to warn people, so instead of hiding and camouflaging themselves, they're actually announcing their presence because other species have learned not to eat them. Now, sometimes that doesn't work because there can always be a kind of bird, for example, that has developed an immunity to their poison. This happens for real on Earth, so this is certainly a good variety to do on your world. If you like this idea, then just create something like a frog that is poisonous to just about everything, but there's one animal or even species or race on your world that can consume them and is unfazed by this. Decide who it is. These poisonous amphibians tend to be more active predators because they are less worried about being consumed themselves. By contrast, an amphibian that camouflages itself is more likely to hide and then ambush its prey. That prey could be your species and races if you've decided to invent a truly enormous amphibian. Intuition seems to suggest that such a really large one is not going to be worried too much about being consumed due to its size, and therefore it might be very colorful, even if it is not poisonous. 
However, if it is relying upon something like your species to walk by, not aware that it is present, then of course it's going to be the camouflaging type. Based on this, you could imagine a scene where a group of characters are traveling and they run across a giant red amphibian and someone says, oh my god, we gotta avoid this because it's going to eat us. And someone else says, well, no, it's probably not going to do that because of its color. You know, it would be something that camouflages itself if it was going to eat us. And of course, one of those guys could be wrong and next thing you know, they're all being eaten. By the way, there is a difference between venom and poison. Venom must be injected into the body, and that's usually from a sting, a bite, or being stabbed. On the other hand, something like a poisonous frog, all you have to do is touch it, and the poison could be transferred to you. A very important point here is that poison is used for defense, but venom is used for both defense and offense. So if you've decided that an animal is poisonous, that is to protect itself. It's not poisoning its victim, it's poisoning the thing that makes to want it a victim. On the other hand, something venomous is actually a predator who is using that on their prey. And of course, they might also use it for defense. This is one of the reasons why a snake may attack a human, even if it has no intention or even ability to consume that human. Make sure you pay attention to this difference and consider its implications when you are inventing a poisonous animal or a venomous animal. Most amphibians are nocturnal, which means they hide during the day. We don't have to follow that, of course, but for the most part, we will want to do that. It's just that we can still invent something that doesn't do that. Know your rules before you break them. When it comes to their food, virtually all of the amphibians will swallow it whole. If there's any chewing that goes on, that is just to subdue the prey. If you find yourself being hunted by one of these giant amphibians you're going to invent, then there are ways to avoid becoming prey. Most of them hunt by sight, and this means that holding still is one way to avoid detection. One problem with this is that most of them can hold still for a really long time, so you would need that ability too. If you can't take it anymore and decide to run, you might find a very long tongue reaching out, snatching you, pulling it into its mouth, chewing a couple times to make you stop struggling, and then swallowing you whole. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? There are a couple more details about amphibians in the Creating Life book, but I'll leave that for the readers. Let's talk about birds. There are a lot of uses for birds in our fiction. They are often used as symbols such as the dove for peace or even a hawk for something like war. They can be eaten and so can their eggs. Some birds are also hunted and then we can also create giant birds that can be used as transportation even though this is probably impossible. We're all used to seeing that however and we basically accept it. Since there are so many birds on Earth, it's relatively easy to just use one that is an analog and change things about it, such as its plumage. We can also change its behavior, such as how trainable it is and how rare the bird is. Like amphibians, birds have to swallow things whole because they don't have teeth. Unlike amphibians, they digest things very quickly so that they can take off and fly again. Some birds are also very smart, which could be interesting if you combine that with ferocity and very large size. Most birds are diurnal, but some of them operate at night, during twilight, or when the tides are appropriate for feeding, if they're the sort of bird that feeds on uh, animals in the sea. The reason that some birds form flocks is for safety in numbers. This isn't necessarily an every bird for himself kind of thing, because, you know, in that scenario, you're thinking, okay, well, maybe one of my friends gets eaten instead of me, but that's not really the issue. The more birds there are, the more eyes there are to spot predators that could threaten the entire flock. This allows them to warn each other. Something else that you will also want to consider is whether the bird migrates. 
The biggest reason to do this is just in case your characters are interested in using this bird in some way, but that the bird is only around at certain times of the year. So let's talk about how to subscribe to this podcast. A podcast is a free downloadable audio show that enables you to learn while you're on the go. To subscribe to my podcast for free, you'll need an app to listen to the show from. For iPhone, iPad, and iPad listeners, grab your phone or device and go to the iTunes store and search for The Art of World Building. This will help you to download the free podcast app, which is produced by Apple, and then subscribe to the show from within that app. Every time I produce a new episode, you'll get it downloaded right onto your iDevice. For Android listeners, you can download the Stitcher Radio app, which is free, and search for The Art of World Building. This only needs to be done once, and at that point, you will never miss an episode. Let's do some classification of fish and other aquatic life. Some of this you may know, but some of it may act as a refresher, and some of it you may not know, so let's just get started. Fish have fins and gills and are cold-blooded, which means they rely upon the environment to control their body temperature. Now, there's an important distinction to make here and that there are actually animals that have the word fish in their name, but they are not actually fish. So what is a fish? Well, we're talking about actual fish, eels, lampreys, rays, and sharks, but we're not talking about jellyfish and starfish. Neither of those are fish despite their names. Dolphins and whales are also not fish. Those are mammals. Now, it may surprise you to know that some fish can actually breathe air just like the rest of us and go for several days without suffocating. Some fish also don't have very good hearing, but most of them are very good at sensing motion, and they have really good vision, taste, and smell. Another characteristic of fish is whether they form a school or a shoal, and these are slightly different from each other. A school of fish is one where all of the fish move at the same speed and direction, and they all turn at exactly the same time. This makes them appear synchronized. This is something you sometimes see on nature shows, and it usually looks pretty cool. A shoal, by contrast, is really just a group of fish that are in the same area, and they're all kind of doing their own thing. This distinction kind of resonates for me because I recently took up keeping fish in a fish tank, and I was told that if I bought six or more of a certain type of fish, that they would form a school together, and so I therefore expected them to be moving in synchronization, and they never do that. They act more like a shoal. They're all in the same general area, but they're all kind of doing their own thing. And yes, I am disappointed, and I want my money back. So how are we going to use fish? Well, one of the ways is as symbolism. For example, we could have a fish be the reason that a group of starving people did not starve. You know, maybe all the food on land went away and there was some sort of drought, but then they were caught, you know, they caught fish and that particular type of fish basically saved everybody because they caught a school of them or a shoal of them and there were enough that they then came to revere that fish for having saved this community. But remember that fish are not always good. Sometimes they can sting us, they can paralyze us, maybe they can poison us, and sometimes they can just kill us. Sharks come to mind. However, remember that sharks don't typically attack people on purpose. It's usually a case of mistaken identity. However, as a world builder, there is really no reason you can't invent a shark that does prey upon your species. Before you do this, you may want to consider a couple things. For example, normally a shark is feeding on something like a seal, which has a lot of fat and blubber, and not much in the way of bones. By contrast, a human is mostly bone, so we really are not that appetizing for a shark. You can ignore this, of course, because many filmmakers have ignored this and have sharks eating people on purpose all the time. As usual, know your rule before you break it. 
Something to bear in mind is that a shark can kill people by accident, where the shark just does a, a little love bite to see what is this thing that's floating in the water. But of course, this bite is so severe that it can actually kill a human. Any similar animal that you create could have the same effect where it's not actually killing people on purpose. This is one way to be a little more realistic about the danger they pose. You know, we were just talking about sharks wanting to eat seals because of the fat content. Well, you know, having them purposely attack humans to consume us maybe doesn't make as much sense as having them accidentally attacking us or doing so out of curiosity. Your invented animal that's similar to a shark can be doing the same thing, and this is a little more believable. Let's talk about mammals. They are typically the smartest and largest animals, although we don't have to do that on our invented world. Most of them have four legs, but some of them have adaptations that are so extreme, like dolphins and whales, that we may not even realize that they are a mammal. Other examples include otters, polar bears, and seals. Something to consider is that some mammals can exist outside of water, like a polar bear, but others will die. Consider this when inventing one. Mammals are warm-blooded and use their own body to regulate their temperature. This can be done in several ways and includes something like blubber, large size, or waterproof fur for aquatic animals. Many of us are unfamiliar with this sort of thing and may not realize it on first looking at an animal. You know, we might look at a polar bear and think, well, isn't it freezing? You know, it's so cold. And the answer, of course, is that it's got the waterproof fur and it has a certain amount of the fat on it. Another thing to consider is that large animals use their weight to stay down on the bottom where the food is, while lighter animals will have their food at the top and they will also be lighter as a result. Some other traits we want to consider is something like a cat that has the ability to sort of parachute itself to slow its fall so that it lands more gracefully. And there are also animals that can glide between trees. They're not really flying, they're just able to spread themselves out, and their body is designed in such a way that they can glide on the air. These are traits that we can use for some of our invented animals. There are some other details discussed in the book, and we're not going to cover those here. In the next section, we're going to talk about some of what mammals can be used for, such as food, leather, wool, experiments, pets, transportation, entertainment, and more. Before we get to that, let's talk about our last classification, the reptiles. This includes turtles, crocodiles, snakes, and lizards. They are cold-blooded, and as you've already heard, this means that they cannot regulate their own body temperature and must rely upon the environment to do so. This also means they have a slow metabolism, and that in turn means they need less food. It also means that they tend to conserve energy, and for that reason, they often have a strategy of lying in wait and then ambushing their prey. One example of this is the crocodile. They can need as much as 90% less food as a similar-sized mammal. What if you had a species that was, you know, like a human, but it was based on a reptile? Well, obviously, they're not going to have the kind of fast food industry that we have because they're not going to be eating all that often, right? That's a funny example, but this is something you should consider if you're inventing a culture that's based on that species that's, you know, based on a reptile. They're not going to have three meals a day, or they're just going to, you know, they might have one big meal, or they might have three really small meals, which in turn means that those meals are going to be over really quick because they're not eating all that much. So therefore, there's probably going to be less formality to those. These are all the things that you might want to consider, and it's something that can make it much more believable. Bear in mind that if you've invented an active reptile, then it does need more food. So these are the things to research and understand. 
Due to this lack of need for food, there are reptiles that can dominate an area if there's not that much food there because they can eat and just eat once a year, whereas something like a mammal would need to eat regularly, and there isn't enough food there to sustain the mammal, but there is enough food there to sustain the reptile. If you want your characters to be traveling through a desolate area and they feel like there's no livestock, and you know they may reach the conclusion, well, there's not a whole lot of predatory animal activity here, right? And then they would be wrong because there might be reptiles there. You're probably thinking that most reptiles are carnivores, and you are correct. However, there are herbivores, and we can certainly do this. Reptiles tend to have smaller brains, and as a result, they are less intelligent. Most of them are diurnal, meaning they are active during the day, but some of them are active at night. By knowing this, we once again have another option that we can use. Smaller reptiles will usually rely upon camouflage to avoid being eaten. Some of them will make a noise like the rattlesnake, and then there's the cobra which will make itself look bigger by fanning out part of its body. Something that's really interesting, especially if you have a humanoid species that is based on a reptile, is that some of them can detach their tail so that they can escape, and sometimes they will have that tail be brightly colored. The reason for this is that they're hoping to that if they are attacked, that they're attacked at the tail, and something like a bird grabs onto that tail, and they just wiggle free, detaching their tail, and they run away while the bird is busy being distracted by this tail, which could still be wiggling for that very reason, to keep the bird's attention while the rest of the animal gets away. These tails can also regrow, but sometimes they're a little bit discolored, and they may not be the same length as the original. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review the show at artofworldbuilding.com slash review. Reviews really are critical to encouraging more people to listen to a show they haven't heard of before. And it can also help the show rank better, allowing more people to discover it. Again, that URL is artofworldbuilding.com slash review. Let's start wrapping up by talking about how we can use the animals we have invented. After all, if neither us or our characters have no use for them, what's the point? One use for animals is for domestic work, like pulling wagons. This doesn't sound very glamorous, because it isn't. However, this can be a good place to start with inventing animals, because it's something that's not going to be used in a more prominent way most of the time, and we can get a little bit of experience doing an animal that is less important to our work. If you've never created an animal before, maybe this is where you start. You may be thinking, what's the point? But if you are sighting different animals that are pulling a wagon train, it helps to create that feel of a different world. In science fiction, such animals may have been replaced by machines. This certainly suggests that we have less use of them. However, they could still be a symbol from former times, such as an ox being seen as a sturdy animal. A company might use such a symbol for its logo, and a character might use the name of that animal as a nickname. This is still true in science fiction and fantasy. Another use for animals is as entertainment or sport. This could be because we are hunting them or racing them against each other, or because we are racing while riding them. The example of horses comes to mind because this is something that can be used for riding them or racing them against each other, and they can also be used as pack animals where they are pulling something like a wagon. So we can have more than one use for the same animal. The names of such animals can also be used for ships or even sporting teams. The Broncos and Colts from the National Football League come to mind. Bronco is also the name of a vehicle. Colt is the name of a gun. Then, of course, there is food. We might decide that some of our animals are not very good to eat, but for the most part, many of them will be, and they will taste differently from each other. 
We can just invent the quality of the meat, such as whether it is tender or tough. We can also decide that people prepare it certain ways. If you're not sure how people tend to cook tough meat, then you can just Google this. Many of the animals that are used as food are kept in pastures, so this is something that we might be mentioning as our characters are traveling the countryside and arriving at a farm. This isn't very exciting, but the little detail can add some realism. If you were approaching a farm on Earth, you would probably see cows and horses in the fields. This in turn might tell you something about the farm that you are approaching, and we can do the same thing on our invented world with our invented animals. Not all animals can be kept in a pasture because of their aggressive nature. And hunting scenes are a classic staple of fantasy in particular and even science fiction, so we might want to invent some animals that must be hunted. The capturing and killing of such an animal can be considered a heroic or brave thing for a character to do, something that shows his strength or virility. Another thing to consider with animals is that sometimes the ones in pastures are docile, but if they are approached, then they can feel threatened and act differently. Another issue can be that if there is a predator nearby, one that feeds on that animal, the animal could sense that it's near, they could smell it, and they might start howling or doing something else, and this could be an indication to your characters that there is a predator near, and that predator could be one that also preys upon that species. In other words, this could be an early warning device, and this could even be one of the reasons why someone keeps certain animals around their home. As an example of this, I have usually had cats, and once in a while I'll hear a noise in the house, and my cat will hear it too, and the cat will kind of casually look over and then go back to its business, and that tells me there's not an intruder or something. But there are times when the cat gets freaked out, and it gets up, and it gets into this posture that says, "Uh uh-oh, there's trouble, and that's the kind of thing where I stop what I'm doing, and I go to investigate. Dogs are famous as an animal that barks at things, but sometimes they do it for uh, something that is not an actual threat to it, so in that sense they may be not as reliable. But you can still do the same thing with an animal that you invent. There are several other uses for animals that I'm not going to go into detail here with, but they are discussed in the book, and that is uh, guards, materials, pets, and transportation. What I want to do now is a wrap-up on where to start with inventing animals. Analogs are a great way to get started, and I highly recommend this for animals. Most of us have neither the time nor the interest in becoming an expert on certain kinds of animal life, like, say, amphibians, and inventing something from scratch. So it's a lot easier to just take something that's similar to what we want, but we can change in various ways and do so freely. But we, uh, you know, we avoid the problem of inventing something that doesn't make any sense. Remember the rule of three when using an analog. Make at least three significant changes. If you don't do this, people are going to recognize that it's really an earth animal with minimal changes. This can actually backfire on us, and instead of transporting someone to another world with something that's different, it just makes us look like we are doing a poor job of this, we don't really care, and that uh, they recognize what it is. Make sure you do your research before using an analog, because a lot of things on earth are different from how we think that they are, because we only have a casual understanding of what they are like. This research doesn't need to be time-consuming. A lot of it can be done off of Wikipedia, although you should try to verify that what you're reading is correct. But, you know, if you're going to use an analog, you almost don't have to worry about it too much because that could be something that you're going to change anyway. One way to get started is to create a list of animals that you would like in your world. For example, we could use some mammals, like we might want another boar, deer, bear, cow, or a goat. 
For sea life, we might want something that's like a shark, a whale, the rays, uh, regular old fish, flying fish, and dolphins. Uh, for lizards, we might want a snake or several of them and crocodiles. For birds, we could use a vulture, a pigeon, and a falcon. We have some variety in that list I just mentioned. For example, with the birds, I said we have the vulture. Well, what is a vulture good for? We can have them flying around above a battle scene, looking for you know something to eat. We can have our characters approaching the site of a battle that has ended in the last day, and these birds are circling overhead, and that's the first indication from a distance that there is something going on. By contrast, a pigeon is just uh, a pest to most of us and might be something that we encounter at the seashore. A hawk or falcon is something that we might use for hunting. So in this case, we've got three different uses for these birds, or the characterization of these birds is very different. My point here is to invent something with variety. Don't create a hawk and a falcon, for example. Those are very similar. So keep this in mind when making your list. Another approach we can use is to create a products list. These are products that will result from these animals. These are products that our characters can use and which we can reference in scenes. For example, goats are used to make cheese and cows can make milk. For more ideas, just Google some of the basic animals that you are aware of and find out what kind of products result from them. Hopefully with all of this information, you have a good idea on how to get started inventing animals. All of the show's music is actually courtesy of yours truly, as I'm also a musician. The theme song is the title track for my Some Things Are Better Left Unsaid album. But now we're closing out with another tune. This is Mesmerized from Now Weaponized. You can hear more at randyellefson.com. Check out artofworldbuilding.com for free templates to help with your worldbuilding. And please rate and review the show in iTunes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>